ABC Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Yes, hello, good afternoon. Michelle Stanley with you. Coming up on the show today, we've been keeping an eye on the impact ex-tropical cyclone Ellie has been having as she's been moving through the Territory and into Western Australia's north. Highway 1, the Great Northern Highway, it's cut off at Fitzroy Crossing. Plans are in action to get supplies to the north, but it's raised questions around the resilience of Australia's supply chains. It's not acceptable that the Kimberley should be disrupted every time we have a wet season. It's not acceptable that our east-west route is disrupted. We've had three disruptions of more than two weeks uh, in the last three years. We've got to do something to make our supply chains more resilient. Also this afternoon, when you're in town doing the weekly or maybe the monthly grocery shop, what drives what you buy? Is it price? Health factors? Maybe where something has been grown? What makes you pick pick up that thing off the shelf? Definitely we are trending more to look at our own backyard, who's growing what, to know who's growing what's on your plate is probably, you know, a really good thing, isn't it? Coming up after one o'clock, you'll hear some of the leading factors thought to be driving consumer behaviour when it comes to food, things at the supermarket, and maybe how you can capitalise on some of those trends in your business. Keep listening to the Country Hour. Be with you until half past one. First up this afternoon, across the Northern Territory, there are more than 600 old mine sites. Now, these range from small scrapes or mounds of rubble dug by hand in the late 1800s to bigger open-cut mines dug by machinery. The NT government has commenced an audit of these legacy mines to assess their risk to public safety and environmental impact. Joni Woolard is the Director of Mining Remediation at the Department of Industry. She spoke with Dan Fitzgerald about the NT's legacy mines. Legacy mines are old mines that no one else is responsible for or Specifically, they are features that there's no security held for. The Territory has a really long history of mining and there's legacy mine features across a majority of the Territory. They can range from small open shafts all the way through to a large complex mine site. The small mines audits are really looking at those quite old features. Usually they were done in the late 1800s or early 1900s and typically done with hand tools or small equipment, not the broad-scale mining we see today. The department is doing this audit of uh, these legacy mines. What will it be looking at? The audit of the small mines is really looking at these historical features that predominantly present a safety risk. So we're talking about open shafts that people can fall in, historical infrastructure such as head frames that people might climb up, they're often quite old and degraded, so it's easy to fall off them and hurt yourself. There is a potential for these to have an environmental impact, but typically these older features present mainly a public safety risk. So it's that public safety risk uh, mostly that the, the audit will be assessing? 
yes, this audit will look predominantly at the, the safety risk. However, if there are environmental risks, it will be noted and also captured in the audit. And at the end of the audit, what will happen with that information? What will government do with it? So the tender that's recently been released to the NT-based company Ecos involves going out on site to look at what are these legacy features. A lot of the information we have is from the early 1900s, so we have to go out there and actually ground truth. The information that we have, is it real? What is the condition of those sites at the moment? Then it goes through a risk assessment process and that looks at what is the potential risk to people is it in an area that people are accessing frequently? Is it close to a township? Based on that, we can then prioritise the work. We will then get the high-risk sites and that will be used to develop a package of works to actually address those risks. In early 2022, we engaged a, another local consultant to do an audit of features around Tennant Creek. That identified 344 small mines features or legacy features from about 71 legacy sites. Following on from that audit, what we've done is we've looked at what works need to be done. We've applied for an Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority certificate to make sure that any works we do aren't going to impact on any sites of significance. And we're also developing a scope of works to address those risks. That will hopefully be out early this year. And we will continue to roll out that program of work. So as the audits are completed, we're going to have more sites that we understand and we will know the risk base. We can then develop a rolling program of works to address the legacy features across the Territory. With more than 600 legacy sites right across the Territory, uh, what sort of cost are is government looking at in um, potentially uh, dealing with all these risks? Until we know what the actual features are and what risk they present, we can't really assess that. However, it's really important to note that these features will be addressed through the Mining Remediation Fund. Now, this fund is funded from a levy on the mining companies. It's an annual levy and it is not based on taxpayers' money. Every mining company that's operating in the Territory at the moment has to pay a 1% annual levy on their security. That money goes towards the Mining Remediation Fund and that's what we use to undertake this work. You said uh, there was a, a couple hundred legacy mine um, sites identified around Tennant Creek just alone. Uh, where else are most of these sites? Based on the review that the Legacy Mines Unit have undertaken previously, we've identified a couple of key areas and the first year for the audit will focus around Pine Creek and Alice Springs. Then it will go out into other areas including Catherine, the rural Darwin area, Mount Evelyn, etc. Joni Woolard is the Director of Mining Remediation at the Department of Industry. She was speaking with Dan Fitzgerald. The audit of legacy mines is expected to take three years and the government has previously put the cost of cleaning up abandoned mines at $1 billion, 23 to 1 on the country hour. Darwin River Dam is close to reaching 100% capacity. Darwin's main water supply is expected to spill in the next day or so with more rain on the way. Here's Eric Boyle from Power and Water. 
With the recent uh, rains that we've had, um, we've increased, uh, the dam level's increased by about a metre in the last seven days. So that's taken us right up to just about spill point. And we're probably about 20 millimetres below that point, but we're expecting it to spill within the next uh, one to two days if the present weather conditions continue. And so how often does this sort of thing happen? Um, well, we've gone uh, for the last uh, three years without a spill, but we did spill in March last year. That was the first time for three years. So it's really had, really good that we've got uh, full dam uh, just at the beginning of the new year because we've hopefully still got a bit of rain to go. And hopefully we'll get uh, a little bit through the year and we'll still be sitting at 100%, which gives us that additional capacity for the rest of the dry season. And so uh, what does that mean for consumers, I suppose? Our consumers shouldn't notice anything other than there's very highly unlikely we will be going into water restrictions anytime soon. What I mentioned earlier, there's just some reports of uh, maybe groundwater like coming out of taps. What, is that something that uh, is common, I suppose, for this sort of time of year? Yeah, we do, we do have a couple of instances during the year where we do get discoloured water. Um, right at the beginning of the dry season is usually the most prominent time that it happens and that's because flow increases and we get that flush through the system which picks up sediment that rests in the pipes during the wet season. Uh, at this time of year, due to the heavy rains and the high inflows and also the surface wind on the dam, it stirs the water up and it becomes cloudy and because we have no filtration system on Darwin uh, water supply, then those small particles end up uh, flowing through into people's houses. But if you flush your water, let your tap run for a few moments, that should clear up straight away. And if you've got any concerns, we've got some uh, really good literature on our website. Uh, so please jump on there and have a look, um, and that should provide you with all the information you need to deal with these events. Yeah, so if people do see, like, brown uh, uh, water coming out of their taps just for, just for a second... Um, does that mean it's still safe or not safe? Absolutely, or? absolutely. Our water system is still disinfected. Um, we monitor the turbidity, we call it, in the water and also our chlorine levels just to make sure that that's still all within operating parameters. Eric Boyle is the Acting Executive General Manager of Water Services with Power and Water. He was speaking with Oliver Chasling. You will hear more about all this rainfall you've been having in the north and how it's been playing out in the Kimberley in Western Australia in particular. It is 19 to 1 on the country hour. If you're interested in the cricket, the score is 1 for 135 at the SCG currently. Before we talk about all the rainfall, let's have some Stephen Pigram. This is Crocodile River. That is Stephen Pigram. The song is Crocodile River. You're listening to the Country Hour where it is quarter to one. G'day, Dylan Wall, Newcastle Water Station. Looking forward to the year ahead. Hoping to get the crew together and we'll go and chase some black balls. You're listening to the Country Hour. Good to have you along this afternoon. Now, the wet and windy weather you've been experiencing recently has caused a few delays down at the port this week. On Friday, you heard the NT's first ever shipment of lithium was being loaded onto bulk carrier Rosanna. This is the first lithium mine outside of Western Australia for this nation. So it's wonderful to be putting the Northern Territory on the map, but also to show how fast this can be delivered to get to completion, to get all of its approvals and to be exporting to the world. So 15,000 tonnes of lithium was due to set sail to China, being loaded on Friday. Five days later, 
the Rosanna was still in port. Now, I spoke briefly with the head of the port in Darwin. He said now the weather had calmed down. It was due to set sail around midday today, and I believe it has taken off. Um, so the Rosanna is finally on its way, but five days later than expected because of the wild weather you've seen in the top end. Um, There were also a few LNG tankers last week which were impacted by the strong winds, weren't able to get into port or leave, but things are starting to get back to normal at the port this week. So it should be back to business as usual pretty soon. The Rosanna now setting sail about half an hour ago or so. You might have seen photos online or even heard on the Country Hour yesterday about the floods over in the Kimberley. Ex-tropical cyclone Ellie went through the territory, dumped hundreds of mils of rain and has since gone to northern WA. The Fitzroy River in the central Kimberley has broken its record. It reached 15.76 metres today and it is still rising. The Fitzroy Crossing Bridge, it's the only major road connecting the north of WA. It's been damaged under the weight and the strength of the water. Now, WA's main roads authority isn't yet able to take a proper look at how extensive that damage is, not until the river lowers. On an initial inspection, it appeared that several piers were damaged. So that's raised some alarm bells about potential supply disruptions for the central and east Kimberley. Cam Dumasey is the head of the Western Roads Federation. He says alternative arrangements are already being made to make sure supplies can still get to the north. Unfortunately, we're getting pretty good at it. You know, we've had the rail washed out, uh, major rail disruption earlier, uh, east-west, and so we've had to accommodate, you know, uh, change to access there across on the east-west route. We've had impacts like this before, but obviously not sustained. Um, the government in WA and, and we've also got to deal with the NT who have been incredibly supportive. Um, getting those plans in place can be pretty quick. What is the longest that you've ever seen that road out of action uh, between Fitzroy and Halls Creek? I've been in the job, what, seven, eight, eight, nine years, eight something years now. I don't think I've ever seen it out for more than a week. Okay. Um, but we've, we've obviously got damage now to the Victoria Highway through Timber Creek as well. We've got damage on the Stewart Highway. Um, we've got damage on the Barclay, or certainly there was flood impacts on the Barclay Highway from Camel Wheel through the three ways, which connects Queensland into the NT and across. So one of the things we've argued, and we've been at it now for two or three years, is we've got to do something about making our supply chains more climate resilient. It, the, it's not acceptable that the Kimberley should be disrupted every time we have a wet season. It's not acceptable that our east-west route is disrupted. We've had three disruptions of more than two weeks uh, in the last three years. We've got to do something to make our supply chains more resilient. How do we do that? What what tools do we have at our disposal to, to, to make that more resilient? Well, there's a couple of things. Obviously, you know, apart from the physical things of you know, improving the road infrastructure and you know, on the east-west, improving the rail as well. It's also things like building up buffer stocks within within the East Kimberley areas and other areas so that this, you know, buffer stocks, warehouse stocks, whatever you want to call it, gives us time, you know, builds us that buffer that we can then adapt to any changes or impacts. We've got so used to just-in-time supply chain systems. We've got to change that and start to rebuild those buffer stocks in, the, in our local areas.
There is an inquiry, a federal inquiry underway at the moment. Is that right? Have you had much input into that or into the resiliency of the of the road network? Does that give you any hope? No. Mm. Um, a lot of it's internal government navel-gazing. Um, not, not a lot of engagement with the industry. Um, it doesn't give you great hope, a lot of those. You, you do see some inquiries which are give you great confidence, but others which just tend to be inwardly focused. Mm. I think there needs to be a far more a far more strategic approach nationally to how we how we continue to supply not just our remote communities in our capital cities, but also enable our exporters, like some of the great produce we produce out of the East Kimberley. We get that to, to global markets and domestic markets. We've got to be far more considered in how we do things. And that sort of consideration, particularly at the federal level at the moment, is non-existent. Western Roads Federation Chief Executive Cam Dumasey, who was speaking with Steph Sinclair about some of the issues facing the transport sector, trying to get supplies into remote parts of the country, particularly in light of the recent, well, the ongoing flood events in the north. And he mentioned some of the damage on the roads in the Territory. Just make sure you're checking in with Roads Report NT website for the latest on what roads are or are not open to all sorts of vehicles. But with all of that rain in WA, the pastoralists are counting the costs with stock and infrastructure lost. Jack Andrews is the chair of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association. He works at Yeda Station in between Broome and Derby. He says it's too early to know exactly how much harm has been done to pastoral operations, but expects it'll be a tough few days. There's certainly going to be some damage moving forward. It's just really difficult now at this point in time with this weather system sitting on the top of a standing body to get airborne and, and really assess what's occurred. There are properties that have got water inundation, flooding that has occurred without going into specifics, but there are areas that are certainly unfortunate to be in those areas that have been affected. Certainly aware of the video of cattle being washed down the river, which is distressing. Certainly no pastors wants to see animals being washed down a river and and certainly a lot of the people that run properties up here have been in this area for a long time and they do a lot of early preparation work before the wet season to ensure their cattle are in safe areas, try and mitigate against these circumstances. But obviously this is an unprecedented weather event, record river levels, record flooding, heights that haven't been seen before. So very difficult to plan for in a period of the, a year, I guess, where there are low staff numbers, minimal staff on ground due to people taking holidays because it's normally a great time to get away once you've got surface water. So there's certainly some challenges on that uh, area, but I'll assure you that every pastoralist in the area will be doing their level best to get airborne and and get proactive as soon as they can to back up the the work they would have done before the wet season and and get around their stock and see what what needs to be done. Mm. Do you have any idea of the sort of scale of losses that we might be looking at? No, I wouldn't like to take a guess, really. We obviously know there's going to be losses, whether it's in the tens or whether it's in the thousands, is, is too hard to tell at this point of view just because no one's got any visual or eyesight across properties at this point in time. We're just unable to basically get around it until this low or this tropical storm moves past and then people have got to gauge where they're at after that. So there's been challenges getting in the air uh, with the weather still kind of hovering in the area, is that right? Correct. It's really difficult flying conditions, obviously heavy rain, downpours, strong winds. So it's making it not impossible to get in the air and be able to assess what's what's going on. Mm. 
How's everyone coping with that? It must be pretty tough not knowing what, what you're dealing with and not being able to do too much. Yeah, it's stressful. Um, that's how I would summarise it. It's just stressful and it's distressing thinking about what might be occurring that you can't get around. Pastoralists are, are in this industry because they, they love what they do. They love livestock. They love working on the land and they love being part of it. So to not be out there and be able to be a proactive at this moment in time is, is like I said, frustrating and and stressful, but I can assure you once they can get out there, they'll do whatever they can and whatever is required to, to get around their properties. You're at Yeda Station there now and you've got a fair bit of rain hovering over you at the moment. When are you expecting this system to pass through and when are you thinking people might be able to get a better idea of what they're dealing with? Well, we'd be looking to possibly get airborne sometime around Thursday. I, wish, I, I believe this looks like it'll go through past Jeter anyway on its way to Broome uh, over the next 24 hours and then we'll look to assess where we're at from that. We're fortunate at Yeter in one regard is that main water coming from the Fitzroy Crossing is probably three to four days away. So we'll, we're slightly more fortunate than others that we should be able to get airborne before that main water comes down. It's obviously, as you mentioned, unprecedented rainfall. Do you think there was enough warning uh, or did pastoralists feel prepared enough for this event? Like I touched on before, pastoralists, a lot of pastoralists have been in this area for a long time. They know their properties. They know where the safe areas to have their stock over the wet season. So all that planning would have gone into place. Certainly, I think we were aware that this storm was coming, that it was going to be record heights. Uh, I guess that's always hard to... To estimate, that's why they're records and unprecedented as it is. So I think pastoralists would have done what they can do. We live in an environment that um, Mother Nature sometimes pushes back and we we have to just work around that. So, mm. yeah, no, I believe we've, we've had the warning and, and people have done what they can and they will continue to do so. Mm. What's next for pastoralists in the region? What will they be uh, looking to do in the next few days? The next few days will be around about livestock welfare. Obviously, the first point of call is making sure that all the staff on the properties are safe and accounted for and have food and supplies. And once that box has been ticked, then it will turn to most definitely turn to livestock and, and just ensuring that what livestock are on properties are, are in a as comfortable situation as possible and, and keeping an eye on those. And, and people will continue to do that until that they're confident that the cattle and horses and whatever other animals are around are, are safe and secure. Chair of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association, Jack Andrews, is from Yeda Station in the West Kimberley. He was speaking with Steph Sinclair. Ex-tropical cyclone Ellie is likely to make her way back to the Territory. So after one, you'll hear from the Bureau what that may look like in terms of rainfall in Central Australia. Four to one on the Country Hour. A mango exporter says he expects less demand for the fruit into China this Chinese New Year, which is another blow after a very tough growing season. Perfection Fresh, which has mango orchards in the Darwin rural area, has been trying to build its exports over the last few years. CEO Michael Simonetta says he's hoping the trade relationship with China will improve soon. China was going really well pre-COVID and before the uh, the relationships between our respective countries soured a little bit, China was going was going well. Um, it's still challenged and been and has been underwhelming this season. Um, and obviously, 
the rain disruptions and everything ha- hasn't helped at all. And obviously the COVID uh, situation in China um, still is that, that's still ongoing and uh, obviously only just uh, restrictions only lifted a couple of weeks ago. That's, uh, that caused also disruptions um, in, in China and as we lead up to the Chinese New Year as well. So, um, but we've, you know, we, we've had success in other markets like uh, Singapore, um, in South Korea. Um, unfortunately, Calypso is not allowed into Japan yet. So we're not, uh, so whilst others are exporting uh, R2E2 and other varieties there, we aren't allowed, uh, we don't have a protocol yet for Calypso into Japan. Hopefully that will come soon. But um, if, if I had to summarize it, um, the best market this season has been South Korea, but uh, Singapore has done reasonably well as well. Just going back to China and their New Year celebrations, which are imminent, I understand. Yes, that's right. Will that will will the uh, cloud of COVID impact on those celebrations? Do you believe, and therefore your exports of mangoes? Yes, I believe they will. Yes, definitely. Penny Wong has also, as the foreign minister, just been over there. Are you optimistic as a business person who does business with China that our relationship is looking more favourable? Look, I I would have to say yes to that. I think it is looking more favourable, but the proof is in the pudding, right? So far, it's just a lot of talk. We haven't really seen any any real change yet, but certainly um, um, I'm much more, uh, I think... uh, let me say uh, bullish than I was than I was a few months ago. So I think uh, I think the the efforts of our foreign minister have been good so far. The headwinds, as you say, have been both domestically and international. How further could you make your business more resilient? I think we've just got to have options. If one market closes, we've got to have options and contacts and uh, and 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 relationships in other markets where we can quickly um, divert from, you know, focus from one market to the other. And and, uh, I guess uh, in the last two or three years, we've done that with um, certainly with Singapore and South Korea uh, as as the uh, market dynamics changed in China. That's Michael Simonetta. He's the CEO of Perfection Fresh and we're speaking with Amy Phillips. Where they're coming up for you after the news, it's one o'clock. G'day, I'm Steve Beattie from Road Trains of Australia. Yeah, I've been working for RTA as a truck driver and in management since 1987. Yeah, and when I'm out on the road in the truck or in my car, I tune into the country hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley, my name. Good to have you along this afternoon. This half hour, I'm keen to hear what drives what you buy. When you're in the supermarket, what is it that sells you on a particular brand of produce or maybe a line of fruit or veg? Is it a cost thing? Does the environment play a role? Maybe whether or not you know the grower? Definitely we are trending more to look at our own backyard, who's growing, what to know who's growing, what's on your plate is probably, you know, a really good thing, isn't it? If you're thinking about your own business and what steps maybe you should take in 2023, you'll hear more on the consumer behaviour, what's driving or thought to be driving some of the trends. You'll hear that before half past one. And if you're keen on the cricket, uh, you might be interested to hear that play has stopped due to bad light and all that's at the SEG and, and rain is 
looking to be on the way. Australia's currently one for 138 with the only wicket to fall, David Warner, very early on 10. Uh, but it looks as though it may be, well, not stumps at least, but certainly a pause in play at the SCG. It's seven minutes past one. Let's look at the weather in the Northern Territory now. Sally Cutter is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. Hello. Good afternoon. The rain in the last 24 hours in the Territory, what have we had? Oh, it's we've had some pretty good falls. Actually, the biggest fall has actually been down around the Wollongaroo area. The so they they had forty three millimeters to nine o'clock. So there's that's that's the biggest fall for the territory. So they, they're the, coming down a little bit from what we were getting earlier in the week. Yes, mainly because the over the top end we're getting smaller showers, and they move. They're st- but they're still moving through relatively quickly. Merganella's had. 13 millimetres since 9am, Adelaide River, Dirty Lagoon the same, the Owen Pally 11 millimetres, Mount Nankar 9.5, McClure Island 10, so we can still see those bigger falls, the, if, to 9am Jabiru got 30 millimetres, so the falls are still out there and given how quickly and how little these showers are moving through, that's, it's not like you're getting one big storm lumbering over the top of you with these get at these totals, we're getting multiple little showers racing through. So that we are getting some still getting some reasonable totals out of it. The there is a big band extending so from so near Mount Isa around to just north probably pretty close through Tea Tree and then towards the Wulungaroo. Wulungaroo maybe just on the northern side of it. But that sort of looks like a big if you look at a satellite picture it looks like a big arc so eventually spiralling into X Alley. So, and there are some storms forming up on the eastern end of that now. Yeah, and there so are also the, the, some storms looking to fire up right across the top end. And um, where's yeah. likely to get some rain this afternoon? Uh, the top end, there's this little clear patch in the southeast Gregory at the moment, but that's filling in. So we might see some showers in through there. Basically, the entire territory is going to see at least showers, if not storms as well. And that's going to continue to, well, basically into the weekend. Ellie's going to, or ex Ellie's going to stooge around near Broome for 24 hours and then start to move down towards the southeast on Friday and then cross into the NT Saturday. And that's going to bring some heavy rainfall down through those the southern parts of the to the Tanami, Leicester particularly, and then extending into the Simpson before it weeks that weekends out. The Simpson's not going to get quite as much rain, so it's going to be mainly the Tanami and the Leicester that sees the re- really heavy falls. And I'm talking sort of 60 to 90 millimetres potentially on Saturday in the southern Tanami, northern Leicester with some isolated falls up over 100 millimetres. So there's some pretty good rainfall out there. Yeah, and how much, like how off. long is it expected to last, those sort of rainfalls up around 100 mils? Uh, only a couple of days. So Sunday should be the last, and we're going to see the Monday, everything easing off a little bit more. Because what's happening is the surface low is is weakening out, but the upper trough and, and low is it's also weakening, but it's also moving towards the east. So the forcing for these showers and storms will keep going. So we're not going. So we're just going. They're not totally clearing, but we're just going to lose that real sort of extra kick that they need to get these really sort of slow, big totals. There is also there's a, so heavy rain's the main issue. There's a slight da- danger of some damaging wind gusts 
but we just got to get those winds down to the surface from the from a higher up in the atmosphere. And Alice Springs, I mean, there was the heatwave warning for the Lasseter, which I believe has wound up. Is Alice looking like it'll finally cool down in the next few days with this rain on the way? Yeah, it's, it's going to cool down, but then warm up again. It's uh, I suppose we are in summer, so staying cool for too long is probably a bit of a big ask. But if you're looking at those maximums of 34 at the top today, 29 Thursday, Friday, or Friday, or Friday's 28, but dropping down to 26 on Monday, but then slowly climbing up again as we go into next week. Okay, so, so, so but, enjoy it while it lasts the cooler temperatures. Yeah, but at least we, at this stage we're not looking at those sort of 40 degree temperatures, which is probably a a bit of a, a bonus if you really don't like those really hot temperatures. Yeah, no, definitely a relief. And how about the coastal water, co- coastal waters, coastal winds? We were hearing earlier in the Country Hour that there were several big ships unable to enter or leave Darwin Harbour because of the monsoonal winds. So how are the coastal waters this afternoon? Well, we've still got a strong wind morning along the west coast, so the Beagle Bonaparte coastal area. Then tomorrow it extends into the Arafura coast, the Gove Peninsula and the Roper Group, so around a lot of the, the coastal areas. The As far as the winds on the harbour goes, we're still looking at sort of 15 to 20 knots and even getting up to 25 on Friday. Just as the low comes a little bit closer, there might be a little bit kick in the monsoon flow before it eases off again. So over the weekend we'll see the flow across the north east sort of calm down and so the not and it's also going to see the the number of showers reduce and f- over the top end the along the west coast it's going to get a little bit trickier to see any rain which if you want your solar hot water and your solar power station to work it's probably good because we're just going to get those southeast southwesterly steering so we, we, it's going to be coming along the coast it's, it's just a little bit trickier to get things going in that that steering but the the rest of the top end could still potentially see those showers and storms and being moved off towards the the, the northeast or east. Yeah, I was actually uh, enjoying a little bit of sunshine today. It's a rare sight uh, this time of year, the last oh, few yeah. weeks at least. Uh, Sally, thank you for, for that very comprehensive wrap. We'll catch you tomorrow. We'll do, thanks. Sally Cutter from the Bureau of Meteorology. It is 13 past one. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Hey, have you ever tried a protein ball? You know those chocolatey cookie dough type balls that sometimes filled with oats, dates, plenty of raw ingredients. They're a pretty good road trip snack or if you need a bit of an extra protein boost after the gym, they're handy for vegans and vegetarians to increase their plant-based proteins too. But the CSIRO is now experimenting with a protein ball based on a new product, which is derived from meat. The idea is that it could provide an alternative source of iron and protein for people who can't get it from foods if they're allergic to things like soy and gluten. 
So a meat-based protein ball. You might call it a meatball, not quite. David Clawton caught up with the CSRO team for a taste test recently. So they're, they're brown and they're the size of a, you know, like a big marble or the protein balls that you usually find. What do you think, Andrew? Very nice. Chocolatey? Yeah. Chocolatey, peanut butter, I can taste that. Yeah. Can you taste the meat? No meat. Can't, cannot taste any meat at all. Artie Tobin, you're the involved in this project. What is the meat sauce? Um, so the burger mince type of thing you would buy from a supermarket. We've taken that mince, which is sort of um, uh, value, so we're trying to value add to it. So we've taken that mince, we've hydrolyzed it using enzymes. Hydrolyzed? Yeah, so you basically use enzymes and you break down the protein into smaller chunks, basically. And you're solubilizing the protein in that way. Solubilizing, turning yeah. into water? Yeah, basically into a liquid, yes. Mm-hmm. So you put enzymes in there and they start sort of chopping the meat into smaller <laughs> protein chains. So this is not like take hamburger mince and grind it up and chuck it into a ball? No, no, no. It's nothing like that. So what we do is we take the meat and then we hydrolyze it. Then we make it go through different processes to kind of extract the fat out or the flavor compounds out and things like that. And then we end up into this white powder that you see. Okay, then so this is a bit like, you know, I've seen... Um, with grains, they extract all the different elements from the grains That's and right. turn it into different constituent parts and yeah. then mm-hmm. here you are, you can put it into all sorts yeah. of things. Okay. So basically, as you know, meat needs to be kept chilled, right? And we have like a big chunk of the animal. Like if you take a whole animal, only 45% of that animal is meat. And of that 45%, only 20% is your steak cuts, right? So the other amount of meat is low value. Or on the other side, there's a lot of waste streams. So what we're trying to do with the meat industry from a, even a sustainability point of view is trying to utilize all the protein that's still in the other 55% or the lower value meat and trying to make these kind of protein powders sort of, you know, reducing waste plus value adding for the industry as well. But, you know, protein balls, and I might bring in Carlos Batista here, he's the... Chef, that's right. Protein balls, like they're kind of like the vegan thing, aren't they? You know, people who need a source of protein but don't want to eat meat. Uh, I think it's for people looking for a protein boost. For example, uh, people that exercise a lot and they need an extra bit of protein, muscle building, anything to supplement what the protein intake that they already have. So, so you're not expecting vegans to pick up these meat protein? No, we'll have to make sure on the ingredient list, as you see here, that it's mm. got protein powder. The reason the meat protein is it takes you away from the allergens, like soya is an allergen, right? Oh, right. You have your, your dairy whey protein has lactose, so there's allergen, there's gluten. So in meat, we don't have any of those things. And also this powder has iron in there as well. So it's from got, the meat? Yeah, yeah, so the answer wow. from the process. So it's got a lot of nutritional advantages, yeah. right? So people could use this as an ingredient and do like-for-like replacement of the whey protein or soy proteins in their formulations as well. So. Are you a bodybuilder, Carlos? No, I, have a look at me. Like, I mean, no, 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 I don't waste my time with that. But um, have you, What brought you into this project? Um, I, I was sort of part of the product development sort of side of the project uh, to develop concept products, which we needed to apply it to show that it can be a replacement for other protein sources in the market. And does that, the powder have a taste of meat? Uh, so it has a distinct flavour. I wouldn't say it tastes like meat. It's a, a, like a savoury type sort of flavour to it. Palatable? De- uh, 
Paddleball, yeah, definitely paddleball. Because, I mean, you've tasted the protein balls. Yeah, why not? Not taste, you can smell it. I'm just giving you a bit of a smell. So oh, yeah, it has a very distinctive smell, doesn't it? Yeah, it incorporated itself well in the protein balls, so you can't really taste it. So, so how did, what else have you got in the protein ball that makes it tasty but disguises maybe that taste or incorporates uh, that taste? All those ingredients there on the list, so all the usual sort of suspects. Oats, peanut balls. butter, honey. Yeah. Did you come up with this list? Carlos, it's got dried cranberries, almonds, milk, chocolate. I'm yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is like something that, it's a typical protein ball that you'd find in any cafe or any sort of, in the supermarkets, like they do try and put all those things in, like say peanut butter's in there because it has a lot of protein in it itself, so it adds even more to it. So, yeah. Is this on the market now? Uh, no, at, not at the moment. We still add proof of concept. So we have done a palaplon trial that Andrew did and we made the powder. And at the moment we're doing like an on accelerator type thing. So we're trying to sort of create a company yeah. around this. So we're just into, in that phase of the project. That's Arte Tobin from the CSIRO, ending that story by David Clawton from the Ag Catalyst Conference, which was in Sydney recently, taste testing some Protein balls with a protein made from meat. They're not meatballs. They are chocolatey and like the typical protein balls you might see in the supermarket shelf. The CSIRO has yet to commercialise that protein powder, so they're not available yet. Surely you'll continue the conversation of new types of foods or food trends that might be worth keeping an eye on in 2023. It's 20 minutes past one on the country hour. Let's have some music from Colin Lilly. It's called Petricor. It's Colin Lilly. The song is called Petricor. It's 24 past one. My name is Nikita Hayes. I'm from Undulia Station and I promote the agriculture industry through social media. And you're listening to the Country Hour. Great to have you with me this afternoon. Now, just a moment ago, you heard from the CSIRO about meat-based protein balls being trialled as an alternative for people allergic to gluten or soy. So, I mean, not the typical veg or vegan protein ball you might be used to seeing in your health food section at the supermarket. These meat protein balls are still on the testing table, but what trends are realistically going to be influencing what you grow this year? Al in Humpty Doo said the new food is sunflower petals and sunflower seeds. There you go. I haven't, I've had plenty of sunflower seeds. I haven't had sunflower petals. Al, thank you for that text. You can get in touch on 0487 991057. Apparently budget-friendly foods are back with the cost of living expected to be the most significant influence on eating and dining trends this year. Kristen O'Brien is a food reviewer. She's based in Toowoomba and she reckons trust also plays a big part in what people buy these days with more and more shoppers frequenting farmers markets to buy their groceries. More people are going to farmers markets and that makes me so happy because people are um, sort of flocking to farmers markets these days to buy their local produce which is great news because they're supporting the farmer directly and um, they're also getting the best quality of produce because at the farmers market the produce is fresh whereas if you go to the big supermarkets you'll find that sometimes the produce has been in fridges and for weeks or months before it even goes out onto the shelf so I love the trend that people are supporting farmers markets and rails 
here in Toowoomba at the Toowoomba Farmers Markets does an amazing job. They had over 150 stalls there just before Christmas. It was a bumper farmers market. So I think we're really lucky what does to that, have. What does that, that say here. about consumer trust? Well, it is a trust issue, isn't it? I think um, definitely we are trending more to look at our own backyard, who's growing what, to know who's growing what's on your plate is probably, you know, a really good thing, isn't it? And is the likes of branded products, like branded beef, an extension of that uh, consumer interest in knowing the story and trust? And have you seen a growth in that area in your eight years as a foodie in southern Queensland? Oh, definitely I have. And um, I love to see these family-owned, mostly all family-owned beef producers and Four Daughters comes to mind. Bannock Bray um, is an incredible local um, sixth-generation farming family here in Toowoomba that sell Farmgate beef. So, and they are—they cannot keep up with the orders. So, no. I do think the trend is definitely going um, gangbusters for the, those farmers that want to make that commitment because it's quite expensive to then go and, you know, for them to basically um, to go and and start producing beef on farm. It's a very expensive exercise. It's not like a simple process but those that have it seems to be working brilliantly for them and I applaud them and and the taste is everything it tastes amazing for businesses that would like to go down the branded path like is there any obvious uh, road or any, any doors that they should first be knocking on well I think it's really important if they are um, you know looking at doing that to really look at their brand and how they want to brand their product and a very important part of that would be telling their real authentic story. And sometimes that can be family related. It could be related to the area that the beef is grown. I think it's really important. And you'll see that trend is emerging, which is wonderful because not only do we know the beef, but we know about the family that produces it. We know about the farm that it comes from and the geographical area uh, where it is. So I think telling the story is probably the most important thing for those beef producers or any producer that has something to sell. That's Christian O'Brien from Dine Darling's Dine Darling Downs in Toowoomba. She's a food reviewer and was speaking with Amy Phillips about some of the trends that she sees for 2023 in food and consumer buying habits. I wonder whether it's something that makes you consider or maybe reconsider what you're doing at your operation. Uh, private brands, that sort of branded beef kind of thing that is in, According to Kristen O'Brien, food markets in, which might be good news, particularly in this part of the world. If there's anything else that you think will be the big ticket for 2023, do get in touch. 0487 is the SMS. New from ABC Audio. Enjoy audiobooks like Wei Chim's The Surprising Power of a Good Dumpling. He battles his demons every day and still finds the time to help me. The Magpie Wing by Max Easton. He noted the condescension of Sydney City towards those from the West. And Sally Rippon's Wild Things. For children, books featuring naughty characters can be incredibly compelling. These new ABC audiobooks are available to own from bookshops and online. That is it for me for the Country Hour today. It'll be the same deal tomorrow if you're streaming online. I'll catch you at half past 12. But if you do want to catch the live analogue version, I'll be with you in the lunch break at the cricket. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. It's 1.30.